Welcome to the seventh episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapons. One of the running themes in our podcast has been the question of regulating the use of private military and private security. In our past episode, we have representatives from the multi-stakeholder regulatory body, ICOCA, and the trade organization, ISOA, encouraging self-regulation. This week, we turned the role of the, to the foremost international body, United Nations. In specific, we will be talking about the vision of the United Nations Working Group on the use of mercenaries as a means of violating human rights and impeding the exercise of the right of people to self-determination. The Working Group is an independent expert body established by the United Nations Human Rights Council. My name is Alessandro Arduino and I will be the co-host for this series along with my colleague Amim Lufti. Thank you, Alex. We're very fortunate to have with us today Dr. Sorka McLeod. Uh, Dr. McLeod is a member of the UN Working Group, as Alex mentioned, which is mandated to monitor and examine the human rights impact of mercenaries, mercenary-related activities, and private military and security companies across the world. Other than that, Dr. McLeod is also a Marie Curie Fellow and Associate Professor of, at the Faculty of Law, University of Copenhagen, Denmark, and her work like her work with UN, focuses on private military security company and privatization of armed conflict. Thank you so much, Dr. McLeod, for being with us today. Thank you, Mim, and uh, thank you again, Dr. McLeod, for, for being with us today. Uh, can I just kickstart today's podcast uh, asking you to give uh, our listener background uh, into the formation of the working group? Uh, let me be more specific. Where did the idea of the working group come from and who are the main stakeholders involved in? Well, first of all, thank you, Alex and uh, Amin, for um, inviting uh, me to take part in this, uh, in this podcast. The working group is very appreciative of, of your engagement uh, with us, and, and we're happy to, to participate. Well, the, the working group is, um, as you already said, it's um, a, a body created by the, the Human Rights Council, and we are part of what is known as the Special Procedures of the, the Human Rights um, Council. Now, the Human Rights Council is a, is, is a body of uh, states um, within the UN uh, system, and it's the sort of foremost uh, human rights body. Um, and what the Council is able to do is to establish expert mechanisms and to appoint independent experts, either um, as solo rapporteurs, so as individuals, or as working groups to look at uh, specific human rights issues. Now they could be thematic or they could be uh, country-based. Uh, country it's important, I think, to, to recognize that we are, we are truly independent. We are not uh, employed by the, the, uh, the UN and uh, we work voluntarily and unpaid uh, for the purposes of um, highlighting specific human rights issues and helping to ensure the protection of human rights issues um, uh, around uh, our, the, the particular particular mandate. Now, as far as the, the working group on human rights is concerned, 
Um, it was established back in, in, in 2005. Um, now, this is, of course, is at the time when there was a lot of um, concern about the operations and activities of, of private military and security companies, PMSCs, uh, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, those activities and those operations were um, attracting a lot of international um, attention. Now, just to say something about our name, you're, you, in, in your introduction, uh, Alex, you uh, uh, read out our, our, our full title. It's a very long title. It's also a rather confusing um, title. It's, I, think we, I think we have the longest, uh, the longest uh, name of any special procedure. Um, but we actually, it, the title can be a little bit confusing. So notwithstanding the, the, the official name of, of the working group, um, we have a twofold um, mandate. And um, on the one hand, we, we focus our attention on human rights related issues um, associated with mercenaries and mercenary related activities. But we also have a mandate to look at private military and security companies um, uh, as well. And over the years, the, the working group has um, devoted attention to, to, to both aspects of this, of this mandate. But at the same time, we, we, we constantly strive to differentiate between the different types of actors that are covered um, by our, our mandate. This is, as you can imagine, is, is very problematic and challenging because um, different terminology is used um, in, the, in, the, in the public domain and in the international domain. So, so we see the reference to mercenaries, private military contractors, private combatants, foreign fighters. We also see reference to private security providers, private military and security companies. So there's a lot of different terminology um, that's, um, that's used. Um, in terms of the members of the, the, the working group, we, we are five. Um, we are geographically representative um, in the sense that we, um, each of us comes from a, from a different uh, part of the world. So we have, uh, I have colleagues who represent Africa, Asia Pacific, Latin America and Caribbean, um, Eastern Europe, and I am uh, the, the WIOG um, representative, um, which is uh, Western Europe and, and others, so includes North America, um, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and we are appointed for a total of six years, and that's um, two, two, two um, uh, terms of, of, of three years. Um, in terms of what we can do, um, and, and what, what activities we undertake. Obviously, as I said, we're a human rights body, um, but you have to also understand that um, what we can, can or cannot do is very much determined by the mandate that's been given to us by the, the Human Rights Council. Um, so just to give you a brief overview of, 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 of what, we, what we do. So, for example, um, three times a year we meet um, uh, in session uh, for a week at a time. Um, obviously, with the pandemic, that's been a bit problematic. Um, so we've not been meeting in person. We've been we've been meeting um, virtually, but normally we meet, we meet uh, twice in Geneva and once in, in New York. And and we use those sessions to um, meet with different stakeholders. So that could be um, states, it could be civil society actors, it could be um, industry representatives, a whole variety of different bodies, um, also including uh, people from the from the the UN and other international organizations. 
Um, and we will, in that session, discuss and review different issues and situations that are of concern uh, to us. And we'll also use those sessions to hold expert um, consultations and sometimes public uh, public events. We also hold hold those those sorts of consultations and events outside of our sessions. Um, we also prepare um, two thematic reports every year. We're required to do that by our mandate. Um, and we get we have um, freedom to choose um, we have freedom to choose the, the the topics that interest us or we think that are relevant um, um, and uh, we present one to the Human Rights Council and one to the the UN uh, general uh, general Assembly um, and of course they are focused on human rights impacts but also IHL violations um, that relate to mercenaries mercenary related activities and uh, private military and security companies. Um, the third thing that we can do is that we are empowered to um, engage um, um, on specific allegations that concern human rights abuses uh, and or human uh, IHL violations that are uh, related to mercenaries, mercenary related um, uh, organizations and private military and security companies. And we do that through um, letters, communications um, that, uh, that go to states, um, but also to other stakeholders. So we can write to, for example, private military and security companies um, as well. And we seek information and clarification about those specific allegations. Um, and those uh, communications, those, those letters um, are made public and they're available on the the website of the, the, the working group, as are any responses that we receive from states or, or any of the other actors. And, and finally, in normal circumstances, we would undertake um, uh, country visits and we would normally do two country visits um, a year. Um, and um, we would, uh, in the, during those country visits, um, they're usually anywhere between a week to 10 days, maybe, maybe two weeks, depending on the, on the country, um, uh, looking at and examining how, uh, for example, private military security companies are regulated. So we would look at regulated structures or we would look at how uh, mercenaries are dealt with in a particular uh, country, always with the aim of um, um, ensuring um, and preventing, ensuring human rights protection and, and, and preventing human rights abuses and, and, and violations. Thank you, uh, Dr. McLeod, for clarifying also the, the sort of nitty gritty beyond the long title of, of the working group. Um, if I could get you to talk a little bit about the latest report that was published, I think the one in September. Now it pointed at least to me a very alarming trend and this trend of, of state increasingly privatizing one of its very essential function of border control to private companies. Now, what do you think are some of the main factors behind this, uh, beyond, behind this phenomenon? Thank you, Amin. Um, we appreciate you highlighting our, our report. One, again, another one of our functions is to disseminate information about, um, about our mandate and about the activities of our, of our mandate. Um, this is a report, um, as you said, on uh, security aspects of immigration and border management. Um, and we're particularly concerned about the involvement of, of the private sector in this, in this area. And we presented it to the Human Rights Council, as you said, in, in September. Now, this report is actually building on 
um, uh, uh, earlier research um, undertaken by um, the the working uh, the working group. So in previous years, for example, we have um, looked at the, the human rights impacts of the of PMSCs in a variety of different sectors, including um, the extractive sector, but always with an eye to looking at the wider privatisation trends um, um, in, in relation to in relation to security. Um, now. What we, what the working group has, has noticed is that the the use of, of PMSCs in immigration and border management is part of a of a, a growing trend and a broader process of outsourcing um, what had previously been inherent state functions uh, to private actors across all areas of of governance, and this is more marked in in some uh, areas of the of the world uh, than others. Um, and it's, it's presented um, as a way of making uh, service provision uh, more nimble um, and, and, and cost efficient. Um, now, this is despite the, 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 the many studies and research that stress the related um, negative human rights uh, impacts of, of doing this. Now, there are also other, so you've got, you've got this um, as being part of a broader trend, this, this, this turn to private sector in relation to immigration and border management. But there are also more specific factors that explain why this is happening in, in relation to immigration and border control. So firstly, um, we can see that states are um, increasingly adopting policies that um, heavily emphasize um, a security approach to, for handling, for handling uh, migration. And uh, countries of destination in particular are adopting laws and policies um, to tighten border controls and to significantly reduce irregular entry. Now, what this means is that it's translated into a larger demand um, and budgets for security services um, in general, for example, um, increased recourse to detention and rapid returns and, and removals. And so the, this wide and, and growing range of private security um, services contracted by states in this sector means that the immigration border management has, has become a multi-billion dollar um, business. And of course, as a, as a logical consequence of, of, of that, companies in the sector, they seek to influence um, policies, um, and the regulation of, of the sector to benefit as much as possible uh, as they can from, from these lucrative um, contracts. And so they have developed um, considerable lobbying capacity and they have positioned themselves and are positioning themselves as subject matter experts in re research and policy discussions, which means that, of course, they're able to influence policies um, in, their, in their interest. And that, of course, then translates um, into more restrictive and security-oriented approaches to, to immigration. So you've got this sort of cycle um, uh, going on. Now, in our report, we elaborate on, on this aspect and we stress um, the considerable and entrenched influence that is uh, garnered by such companies to the point that many states now depend on them for um, a wide range of aspects of immigration and border control. And another important factor um, in increasing reliance by states um, um, 
in relation to immigration and border control is the increasing is there is there increasing reliance on new technologies um, to support um, the implementation of immigration and border control. Um, so, for example, we see um, high tech surveillance and detection systems being implemented. We see um, the collection and storage of, of biometric data, uh, uh, for example. Now, this technology is constantly updated and it's um, often developed, maintained and operated by uh, companies from the, the private sector, which, of course, makes them seem indispensable um, to implement immigration and border control policies. Now, in our report, the working group, um, uh, we identify the use of new technologies as a, as a key element that has led to the securitization of border control and in turn to a growing market for, for PMSC services in immigration and border uh, uh, management. And it also raises very serious human rights um, questions. I, I would like to a little bit talk more, as just you mentioned, about the human rights question. Uh, you, you just said that, that uh, there are negative impact on human rights uh, and also uh, the private security sector trying to promote more uh, their uh, business. Uh, in this, uh, also, we also see that uh, supporter and defender of security privatization always try to shed the blame for violation of human rights, uh, uh, just using the fact that uh, private security is just a tool. So if you use a knife, a knife can be used uh, either for cut vegetable, let's say, or to injure someone. And that's uh, a fact. But uh, in the report, you mentioned specifically that the private security services are not only responding to a pre-existing demand, but are actually creating themselves a demand via lobbying and marketing. So in this respect, uh, can you give us more details in uh, which way the private security industry is, uh, is promoting uh, this uh, securitization of border and immigration policy, besides the, the, the two or three points that you just mentioned now from uh, uh, face recognition, biometric, uh, and creating a report and lobbying, of course, for that. Absolutely, Alex. Um, I mean, your question raises very important uh, elements that, that go beyond just the area of immigration and border um, management. Um, firstly, um, in relation to, to state responsibility um, for human rights violations and abuses um, in, in, in the context of privatized security services. So even if states outsource um, some tasks and services, for example, in relation to immigration um, uh, and, and border uh, management. Nevertheless, they still retain their, their human rights obligations. And if we think about it from the, the immigration and border management perspective, if a state contracts um, with a company to operate, for example, a migrant detention centre, that state still has to make sure that the, the, the conditions under which uh, uh, people are detained uh, meets adequate um, human rights standards. So that means that they have to ensure that there is adequate access to healthcare. And of course, that's something that's, that's particularly important during, during COVID-19 um, uh, COVID global pandemic, but also access to, um, to food, um, to make sure that um, there are hygienic standards um, um, uh, maintained, um, um, and that, that no one is um, exposed to 
um, torture or to any other form of, of ill treatment. So the responsibility lies clearly with the, the state to, um, to make sure that those standards are uh, articulated precisely and enforced. And not only that, to ensure that anyone who breaches those, um, those uh, uh, regulatory standards is held, um, held to account. And so this is why procurement processes, um, contracting processes, inspections, auditing, other monitoring and oversight tools are so important to make sure um, that, that such standards are in fact uh, maintained and, and respected. So that's from the perspective of the, the state. The state, the state always has that human rights obligation, even where it where it privatizes certain services. Now, in relation to the companies, uh, on the other hand, they have to recognise their role beyond um, simple service provision, and companies. Private military security companies, like any other, have to comply with national legislation and other regulation, um, which would normally um, include uh, human rights standards. So, for example, um, uh, legislation provisions, legislative provisions uh, relating to non-discrimination, relating to the use of force, sexual and gender-based violence, for example. Now, this gets much more complicated if a company is contracted by one state to provide services in another state, so to do it extraterritorially. Um, and again, it becomes further complicated if um, those services end up being further subcontracted to a number of different providers. And this is something that's very common within uh, the private security um, industry. We, we, we frequently see um, extraterritorial contracting. We also see uh, uh, frequent uh, subcontracting. Now, um, our, um, uh, our working group works within a broader human rights framework. And this transnational aspect is taken into account in, within the existing international framework, in particular, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. Now, the guiding principles, they set out that every business, and that would include um, uh, PMSCs, um, that every business has a, has a corporate responsibility to respect human rights. Now, in particular, the, the guiding principles outline that companies uh, should take action to prevent or to mitigate adverse human rights impacts that are directly linked to their operations, uh, their products or their, their, their services. Um, and this is, is what we call human rights due diligence. And this human rights due diligence can um, entail a variety of different elements. So, for example, companies are expected to uh, carry out human rights risk and impact assessments. They're expected to put in place um, uh, human rights policies and codes of conduct that will ensure uh, that the company uh, complies with human rights standards. They're also expected to carry out um, vetting and training of staff. Um, so, for example, to look at um, uh, an individual's history, has an individual been accused of, of, of war crimes or human rights violations in, 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 in the past? Um, and they're also expected to put in place um, uh, corporate level grievance mechanisms so that if somebody has a, has a, a complaint, a human rights complaint, that they can go directly to the company if, if, if they choose to. Now, this is especially important um, if a company is operating in a, 
in a context where there are heightened risks of um, human rights um, abuses. Um, and of course, you know, that's often in um, armed conflict or post-conflict uh, situations, but not always. Um, but in those sorts of situations, their operations can affect individuals or groups of individuals who are, who are in very um, vulnerable um, circumstances. So when it comes to um, companies providing these types of services, before they provide them, a company should in fact assess um, and, and conclude that its operations will not contribute or cause human rights violations and abuses. Now, if we give you, give you an example in, in relation to the immigration and border um, sector, some, uh, some governments um, have contracted companies to carry out um, or to facilitate uh, deportations and returns uh, of migrants. And what this means is that there's a, a potential risk for, for, for that company to become complicit in uh, returning individuals um, who might be in need of um, protection. So for example, someone who's been a, a victim of human trafficking or uh, returning an individual to a country where they'd be, uh, specifically be at risk of human rights violations or, or persecutions. And these are the sorts of risks that um, uh, private military security companies should be um, assessing um, in their human rights impact um, assessments so that they avoid um, contributing to, uh, to human rights um, violations. Now, the problem, of course, is enforcement. How do you actually enforce um, this, this framework? Um, the guiding principles um, are, are non-binding. Are non um, only a few countries have made human rights due diligence mandatory or are considering uh, doing it. The EU is in the process of considering uh, implementing mandatory human rights due diligence. But the reality is that this is still predominantly um, uh, a framework, a regulatory framework that is not binding um, and it's, it's, it's soft law. Um, and so from the working group's perspective, there's a, there's a lot to do in terms of raising awareness um, among states, but also amongst, amongst um, the companies themselves. Um, and we do see that companies are reacting to reputational risk. They do um, react to, to public, um, uh, public outcry, um, divestment campaigns, for example, and even pressure from their own, from their own employees. Thank you. Uh, for giving us the sort of broad overview about um, sort of the different phenomena that are um, shaping uh, sort of both the, the regulation and the monitoring mechanisms of, of the private uh, security industry. I want to get to a specific point that the report mentions, and I'm again here talking about the one on immigration and border control, the privatization of the and the one, the one of the phenomena is that you mentioned is this way of something called externalization, where countries are now uh, exporting quite ironically their border control to a third country of transition, or um, a, a country, or, or or the what do you call it, the, uh, the 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 country where people leave from, right? And then there's another reverse process, and I think you mentioned it very briefly in your response to the first question, is about how technologies, new technologies developed for wars abroad are actually coming back home 
to increase the securitization of border at home. So I'm wondering if you could speak about these two processes. One is of, of things going outside, like the, of, of, of the border going outside, and then wars coming back to solidify the border at home. Yes, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting, um, interesting issue. Now, um, in terms of externalization, this has been used and actually is continuing to be used by countries of destination um, for migrants. Um, and it's been used as a tool to distance themselves um, geographically, morally and legally um, from their human rights obligations um, towards migrants. And increasingly, we're also seeing that transit countries um, are uh, seeking to enforce externalization to prevent entry into their territory in the, in the first instance. Now, what this means is that migrants um, are, are being dehumanized. Um, and it means that, they are, that migrants are being framed as a, a threat to national um, security. And of course, this is, this is most concerning um, to the working group. It's also generating demand for private security and increased surveillance and patrolling along migration routes. And the consequence of that is that it's compelling migrants to take um, indirect um, and more dangerous routes um, to, to, to reach their destination. And taken as a whole, Externalization means that migrants are often finding themselves trapped in their countries of first arrival or transit. And um, this is, these, they're arriving in situations where the, the, the state capacities to provide them with appropriate protection um, are much lower. And they are being exposed to violence and abuse on a, on a frankly, a massive, uh, a massive scale. Now, if we give you um, um, a specific example, um, the working group on the use of mercenaries and other UN bodies, we have um, repeatedly raised concerns um, through, um, in terms of, in, in the context of the working group, through the, the, the communication letters that I, I mentioned um, in the introduction. Um, we have repeatedly raised concerns um, uh, and serious concerns about the detention um, conditions and the mistreatment by private security companies contracted by Australia. Um, in relation to migrants um, detained in offshore centres in Nauru uh, and on Manus Island in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, and there's increasing evidence that states are actually ramping up this, um, this sort of externalisation. So it's definitely something that the working group has, has, has had its eye on. Um, you also asked about um, uh, uh, new technologies. So in, in relation to, to the new technologies that are being used, um, that are being, if you like, trans, transported from armed conflicts um, and that are now being applied in, in, in border control um, and management. Um, well, this, this um, shift, if you like, also falls within the broader um, uh, securitization uh, narrative that, that we've seen emerging and I, and I mentioned earlier. Um, and so what we see is that, that private military security companies are framing their services um, as being a response to um, uh, emergencies and to perceived threats. So to national security, to borders, etc. You know, and and the, and, and the, the, the threat is, is that of migrants. So 
so what we're seeing is that equipment and technology that has been so-called battlefield tested in, in, in crisis situations, in armed conflicts, for example, is, being, is, is increasingly being used in immigration and border management. So we can see that, for example, um, the, in the use of um, drones, um, which are um, increasingly being used in uh, border surveillance operations. So, of course, that raises significant concerns around um, the right to privacy, for example. On this respect, uh, uh, now I would like to move the discussion um, into the part of the world in which our institute is more concerned. And I would like to ask you if you noticed a trend through our country in the Middle East uh, that are also outsourcing policy of their borders and immigration control to the private sector. Thank you, Alex. We're, we're, we're especially um, uh, pleased to be able to engage with, um, with the University of Singapore in, uh, on this because um, this, is, uh, this, this is a region that uh, it, it often doesn't receive um, enough um, attention. So we're, we're, we're very happy to, to engage with you on this. Um, and it's definitely true that the, the, um, uh, the trend has, has, has been more pronounced in um, countries of destinations uh, for, for migrants. Having said that, um, the use of, of private security services in relation to immigration and border control is definitely um, also taking hold um, elsewhere, including in the Middle East, for example. Um, so now, so far, the extent of, of, of that that form of privatization in, in the region has been uh, more limited. Um, but we've got to remember, of course, that, that private military and security companies can, for example, be involved in um, capacity building projects and in the deployment of new technologies. And so they're bringing with them the security approach to immigration and border management from countries where that privatization process is, is, more, um, is more advanced and, and more, more entrenched. Um, now, more generally, um, what is often problematic is that there's not enough publicly accessible and detailed information about how and to what extent um, do states contract private security services to support their, um, uh, uh, their immigration border policies and to implement those policies, and also what mechanisms and measures um, they've taken to make sure that their contractors comply with human rights standards. And very often, even the most basic information about what services are in, outsourced and, and to which companies is, is simply, um, simply not available. And so this um, opacity, this lack of transparency um, and lack of access to information makes effective monitoring, oversight and accountability very challenging. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. McLeod. Um, if I'm right, I think one of the issues that the working group takes very seriously is about trying to pinpoint the definition or sort of like I'd really identify the problem very clearly. Um, and one of the approaches that I, I, you know, I really appreciated that the working group is taking is that it's trying to identify uh, private military and security companies by their functioning rather than how they self-identify themselves. Now, but that uh, it takes me, if, if that leads to some problems and questions. Um, so if, if, for example, if a company is providing military and security services on a compensatory basis, right? Uh, no matter what their business officially claims to be, according to the report, 
it would be identified as a private military and security company. And now a couple of months back, we had Doug Brooks from uh, ISOA come. And, and one of the things he asked was that, well, you know, if you're in a war zone and you run a trucking company and your employees have to be armed because of the nature of terrain in which they work in, would they be identified as a PMSC? Um, or for that matter, one of the one of the issue, one of the phenomena that the, that the working group uh, report highlights is that airlines are now actually increasingly being involved in border control and border and, and securitization of border. So would you now include uh, you know at least some of the functions of these airlines within the category of PMSC? No. This, <laughs> thank you. I mean, it's it, it, it it's a highly contentious issue, um, as I as I think you're 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 both well 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 aware. Um, this issue of uh, of definitions is is definitely contentious. Now, the, my working group, we 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 have elaborated our um, own definition, um, our own working definition of of PMSCs, um, which emphasises the 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 broad nature of services. Um, that, that are provided by these companies, and, I've, and I've, I've talked already about how they are expanding into into new into new uh, areas. So, immigration and border control being one of them. Um, and we we focus on the nature of the services provided by the companies rather than how the companies self-identify. You've got to again remember that we are coming from a human rights perspective. So that's that's our that's our priority is is ensuring the protection and respect for for human rights. Um, and this is the approach is that we take uh, in our in our latest um, report. And so, the emphasis um, on the the activities and the services carried out by by these these companies is even more important as I as I've just said because um, these are companies that are. Um, constantly evolving, constantly changing, and widening their, their range of um, operations. And you know, we, we've, we've seen that, um, um, as, as, as we mentioned, that they're, they're, they're positioning themselves as emergency res uh, responders, um, responding to the threat of, the so-called threat of, of, of migrants. But we're also seeing it in relation to um, new, and, new, new technologies and cyber um, technologies. And the other thing that's important to, to remember here is that, that um, particularly with the larger um, companies, um, the larger uh, private security companies, they um, uh, have often very complex corporate structures and they can uh, you know, operate as conglomerates, as joint ventures. There's a lot of um, acquisitions, there's frequent acquisitions and mergers going on in the, the industry. There's also um, a significant amount of, of subcontracting, again, as we, as we mentioned um, earlier. Now, all of these things taken together, um, it makes it very difficult to put a, a very clear-cut label on, on, these, on these companies. Now, from the working group's perspective, um, the focus on activities or the services that these companies provide, it's much more helpful and useful for capturing the, the human rights risks and impacts um, that are posed by the operation of private military and security companies. And as I said, you know, that's, that's fundamentally this, you know, the source of our, of our, um, of our mandate. And, and it's what, what we're here to do. Um, so 
what we're interested in is looking at well what activities or what services qualify as private military security services and which of them entitles heightened risks heightened impacts of human uh, rights violations and, and, and abuses um, now this can be down to the the particular nature um, of the activity so for example if we're talking about um, an activity that uses involves the use of uh, the use of force or it's uh, context specific so it's dependent on the particular operational context so when we're talking about an armed conflict or we're we're talking about um, security providers being in contact with individuals in, in vulnerable situations for example migrants um, so by concentrating on the potential human rights impacts it also offers us much needed flexibility to cover the changing and widening scope of private military security services and so this approach in in our view should therefore be the starting point for regulatory monitoring and oversight efforts if they're going to be effective in preventing and addressing adverse human rights impacts by this very wide range of existing and ongoing and expanding uh, private military and security activities um, actually the, the one state has actually um, taken has taken this approach in its domestic legislation so if we look if we look at the the Swiss federal law on private security services provided um, abroad um, that legislation uh, takes um, the approach of, of um, regulating the services that are provided um, uh, abroad um, and not what the company calls itself or or, or what, how the company self-identifies so we you know we're, we're we're seeing that even you know at the the the, the legislative um level now i think you also asked a question about um uh, airlines potentially uh, uh, being involved um uh, in this in this context now we don't uh, in the report in our report we do not describe them as private military and security companies um, and so if we if we if you if you understand our approach which is to look at the services our report notes that they provide specific private security services in the area of immigration and border border management so in particular they carry out deportations and uh, returns but they actually also um, enforce carrier um, sanctions. Now, um, again, from the human rights perspective, this means that airlines uh, can become complicit in human rights violations. Again, we mentioned this earlier, if, if, if an individual is, is, is returned to, to a place where they may be at risk of, of torture um, uh, or some other form of ill treatment. Um, now, we've seen some uh, uh, airlines um, refusing um, to transport children, for example, who were who were uh, separated in the United States um, and Amer several American airlines refused to uh, reportedly refused to transport those children that had been separated from their families um, in the context of the, the zero uh, tolerance um, policy. On, uh, on, the, on this respect, please allow me to continue the discussion. Um, uh, we are trying to define PMSC, uh, looking at structure, looking at service. Uh, but uh, one of the key definitions in the future of private military and security company that the report identifies is that they have to be compensated for their military and security service. 
So uh, starting to the fact that this compensation probably is always has to be monetary. If we look at uh, an hypothetical case, uh, having a, a patriotic security company, let's say from Russia to the United States, offering to defend the border voluntarily, not for a compensation, or let's say maybe in the future in exchange or bigger deals uh, fr from the government uh, uh, and for a subsidy, not even for directly for this company. So in this hypothetical case, it would qualify as a private military security company. <laughs> um, the, working, the working group's definition uh, identifies uh, private military security companies as corporate entities that are providing services on um, a compensatory basis. Um, and what that means is we um, include organizations, commercial organizations that are legally registered um, according to um, a given state's applicable rules and regulations and that they seek to make a profit from their, uh, their operations. Now, having said that, we have to recognize that there is a very broad spectrum of actors involved, uh, involved here. Um, and um, what we're starting to, to, I think what we're starting to, to, to get towards is, um, if, you, if you like, the ex sorts of examples that are moving us to perhaps a slightly murkier um, uh, end of the, 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 the spectrum and where we start to see um, the lines blurring with other types of actors, which of course would include um, um, mercenaries. Now, it's, it's important here to distinguish between, on the one hand, the companies that are operating and complying with a clearly defined legal framework, and on the other hand, um, entities or organizations whose um, identity, whose ownership, and whose motivations are extremely opaque, um, extremely ambiguous, and very often purpose uh, on purpose. Um, now, to give an example, this, seem, this would seem to be the case with the, the so-called Wagner um, uh, group, which um, attracts a, a variety of different um, descriptions. So we, we, we see it being described as a, as a private military company or uh, a paramilitary group, but also uh, it's been described as semi-state security um, forces. And, um, and, and an organization like that really highlights the, the sort of legal ambiguities um, regarding its its formal registration and um, and, and corporate um, identity. Now, other um, other um, organisations and, and companies seek to obscure their their, their legal personality and their their, their ownership um, structures, and and in trying to do so, they they, they actively um, will seek out um, states with with uh, weak regulatory frameworks. Um, or they might um, even create shell companies. And what we're seeing here is, is, is a pervasive opacity or opacity um, and um, pervasive ambiguity. Um, and this makes it very difficult to identify the applicable laws and the applicable regulations as, as well to, to, to determine who the clients are of these types of organizations, what are their objectives, what are their sources of, of funding. 
And it also raises really serious concerns about the legality of their operations, especially um, if they're operating in situations where there's uh, armed conflict um, um, or where there's widespread violence and, and, and a weak um, uh, uh, rule of uh, rule of law. Now, just to come back to to to, to Wagner for 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 a moment, um, the working group um, has received uh, 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 reports um, um, about the um, alleged deployment of of uh, Russian private military personnel, uh, possibly from the Wagner group, in the conflict in Libya, um, in support of one of the parties to the conflict, the Libyan um, National Army. Now, there have been allegations that, that Wagner personnel were involved in the summary execution of a group of um, civilians. Um, now, from the working group's perspective, there are significant challenges in determining who exercised operational command, um, uh, who exercised operation control um, over these um, individuals. It's almost impossible to determine what type of compensation or what level of compensation uh, they actually um, received and what sort of accountability mechanisms, if any, um, were, were in place. Now, um, our wider concern is that the, 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 the opaque and um, ambiguous um, uh, nature of, of, of private military and security providers can be used by, by states or other stakeholders to intervene in an armed conflict or in other contexts while at the same time denying their involvement and therefore avoiding their obligations under international law. And this carries significant um, uh, risks that human rights violations and abuses and IHL violations for that matter will go, will go unpunished. Uh, thank you. Since we're already on this issue of how different countries and different cases coming in and kind of complicating the our understanding of um, of, of, of how this industry or this phenomena really works. Now, I want to shift the focus on to a part of the world that we're situated in right now, and namely Singapore. And here in Singapore, uh, the interest uh, really in, in sort of, the, let's say, the last decade or so has been on private companies offering security insurances, particularly in relationship to maritime security. Now, um, I think one like one question, like more broadly about like do like uh, the, the the insurance companies, which don't perhaps directly you know touch the issue of human rights directly, do they come into the analysis as well? And also uh, specifically about Singapore, what do you think, uh, or can there be a role for Singapore within the working group as well? Thank you. I mean, as I said at the beginning, the, the working group is, is very happy to be, uh, to be uh, engaged with, with uh, stakeholders in, in, uh, in uh, East Asia. And um, we're very eager to in, engage with states uh, from, you know, from the, the region in, in the frame, within the framework of our mandate. Now, um, as a general rule, um, East and for that matter, Southeast Asia, is a region in, on which um, we in the working group receive um, relatively limited information with, with respect to PMSCs as well as mercenary activities. So we would absolutely uh, welcome engaging with um, Singapore um, as well as other states in, in the region to, to learn more about the particular challenges 
um, that you face in, in, in the region, as well as um, uh, good practices that are, that are, that are being uh, developed, particularly in relation to, to regulation of, of the sector. And this could be particularly um, uh, useful and relevant for us to help us better understand um, the use of private security in, in maritime security, which is an important um, part of the, of, the, of the PMSC industry, but it's, it's very specific and, and very challenging um, to, to grasp. Now, as I mentioned when I, when I explained the, the work of the working group, one of the, the possibilities that we have is uh, it, when we engage with states is to carry out um, uh, country visits. And that would be one specific way in which uh, Singapore um, could support our mandate by, um, uh, by, by inviting us to, to, to do a country visit where we can delve into these issues in, in much, more, um, much more detail. We would also uh, very much encourage Singapore to, um, to take part in um, the intergovernmental open-ended working group that's been mandate, mandated by the, the Human Rights Council to elaborate on the contents of an international regulatory framework for PMSCs. That would be um, on a, a regulatory, international regulatory basis, we would actively encourage that. We would also encourage um, Singapore to consider joining some of the other international initiatives that we've not, we've not had time to talk about today. Um, but the, the Montreux Document Forum, for example, um, or the International Code of Conduct um, uh, Association. And um, you know, the strategic position of Singapore in the region and, and um, its experience with maritime security, we feel could be of particular added value. Thank you very much, Dr. McLeod. Please uh, just uh, allow me to end this interview to ask the question that we are used to ask to all our guests, uh, and that is, uh, what will the future of warfare and security management in a complex environment is going to look like in the coming 30 years? And, and most important, I will ask you to do something more that is introduced to our audience the coming report on mercenary activity that you are planning to, real, to, to release soon. I do believe it will be just in a few days. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Um, uh, th and thank you for mentioning our, our, our report. As I said at the beginning, we, we produced two reports. So one report was on uh, immigration and, uh, and uh, border management. Um, but our second report that's going to the, the General Assembly will be presented, I think, at the beginning of November. Um, is uh, Actually, touching on, uh, on 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 your question about the 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 future of, of warfare, as in this report, we're we're looking at the the changes that are um, that are emerging and uh, that are marking contemporary armed conflicts and 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 what effects uh, these changes are having on the the forms and manifestations of of mercenary and mercenary related activities. Um, so in the report, we highlight that um, in parallel to considerable changes um, in contemporary armed conflicts, um, a broad range of activities has, has developed that can be to a greater or lesser extent linked to mercenarism. And in some cases, uh, these um, um, activities led to the intensification and uh, prolonging of conflicts and, and of course, subsequently resulted in uh, human rights abuses and violations of, of IHL. Now, one of the key elements highlighted in the report is the great variety and multitude of actors involved in contemporary armed conflicts who share characteristics with 
mercenarism, mercenaries, while at the same time not falling squarely within the very rigid international legal definition of, of, of mercenaries. So this makes it very challenging again to, to, to address um, their activities and to address the, 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 the human rights and IHL um, implications any, in any sort of coherent manner. And it's something that's likely to continue with the increased use of new technologies um, and development of cyber capabilities. Um, and so this multitude and, 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 and proliferation of actors involved adds complexity to determining who's involved, how they're involved, and who's responsible for potential uh, human rights violations and IHL violations. Um, another key element before I finish is that we emphasize in the report is, is that, again, is this pervasive secrecy and opacity that surrounds mercenaries and mercenary related activities. And it's particularly uh, evident and stark when, when such actors are used to remotely influence armed conflicts which gives their patrons, you know, so-called plausible deniability uh, over their involvement. And, and from our perspective, this constitutes a particular threat to the respect of human rights and, 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 and humanitarian rules. So those are just a couple of the, the main issues that we, that we develop further in the, the, the report. Um, and um, all, of, all of our reports are available on, on the, the working group's website and people are, are free to, to access them there. And, and we would very much welcome um, uh, your listeners to read um, our reports and, and, and absolutely to reach out to the working group if they, if they want to engage with us on particular topics or in particular situations. We would very much welcome that. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. McLeod. Um, thank you for joining us. And really, I mean, thank you for all the work that you've been doing with the working group. It is essential service and it is a really important role that, you know, I'm glad that, you know, that you, you take, you're, you're, you know, you're putting everything into it. And listening to you talk about today really gave us a good insight about all the sort of complicated decision-making that have to go into design, deciding something that's so actually delicate and difficult. Um, so thank you for all of that. And also uh, please allow me to thank the boost of the boots of the ground uh, group at MEI, without whom this podcast would have never been possible, namely Kevin uh, Lim Wei Chen from the events and communication team, the MEI associate director, Carl Stadian, and also special thanks to all the listener. Please keep on following us on the various social media platforms and send us your comments and feedback. We'd love to hear from you. That's all for today. Thank you so much, everyone.